I bet at least once in your life, you've either heard or been told uh, something along the lines of like, can't you all just get along? Like maybe, maybe that was you and your siblings when you were fighting over something. Uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe a coworker said that at work when things got a little heated in a meeting um, or wherever the case might have been. You know, and it just seems like that's a question we ask quite often. Like, why can't, why can't we all just get along? It seems like it would just be so easy, right? If like our schools and our communities and our families, wouldn't everything just go so much better if we could just all get along? And yet we, we continue to challenge to make that possible. Like you would think you get a bunch of smart people in the room, oh, we, can, we can figure this out, we can come to a good agreeable solution, and yet sometimes that works and a lot of times that doesn't work. You get a bunch of people in a room and it just seems like, more conflict, more problems, more fighting. And maybe, you know, there's a number of reasons why that can happen. Uh, you know, sometimes the solution is a lot more complicated than one meeting is going to ever fix. Sometimes there is outside pressure that skews decision-making, right? Sometimes maybe the people in the room making that decision, maybe they don't trust each other. And so they're unable to have the honest conversation that it's really going to take. Or sometimes everyone's got a different goal in mind. And so they're not really marching towards the same answer. And whatever the reason is, something goes wrong. And at some point, we're at each other's throats, angry and upset about the way things are and the way things are going. And there's a story in Genesis, Genesis chapter 11, if you want to turn there, that actually kind of tells us a lot about ourselves. It has a lot to do with our own human nature. And, you know, it's the story called the Tower of Babel. And maybe this is a story you haven't studied since like a week of VBS or like when you were a kid in Sunday school, because it's just kind of one of those stories when you get to be an adult, you just kind of skip over it, right? You just kind of remember some of the big details and you just roll right past it. But actually this story has an awful lot to say about our selves and who we are, the kind of people we are. So here's what we read in Genesis chapter 11, starting from the very beginning. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing that they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. This is why it was called Babel, because where the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now in this, uh, just this short story, there's actually three missteps that the people make that leads to this consequence of language being confused and then being scattered. 
Let's start with the biggest misstep that they made. The biggest misstep is they ignored God's command. You see, Genesis begins with this command in chapter 1, verse 28, where God says to Adam and Eve, he says, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So that is the command that people have been given, to scatter and fill the earth. And in fact, after the flood, when Noah and his family comes off of the ark, God repeats that exact same command twice. He says in verse 1 of chapter 9, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And just a few verses later, As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. So there's this role that they're supposed to scatter out across the entire planet. And then we get to chapter 11, and they don't. In fact, they do the exact opposite. I mean, they even say that's why they want to build a city. They even say, let's, let's build a city so that we won't be scattered. So they completely ignore God's command that he gives in Genesis. So the problem's not exactly that they're choosing to build a city. It's why they're building that city. They're motivated to ignore what God has told them to do. Now, back when I, when I was in a grade school, um, I kind of had this routine. My grandpa would pick me up after school, and my routine was to avoid the traffic of car pickup. I would just walk about a block and a half from the school, and there was this one corner intersection where my grandpa would park his truck every day. I would meet him there, and he'd take me home. And one day after school, uh, my friends and I decided, hey, let's just, let's just take a few minutes, and let's just play over here on the playground. And so we did that. And we got done playing, like, okay, I've got to go meet my grandpa. So I, I walk down to that same spot, and grandpa's not there. There's no truck. So in my little, I think I was probably in kindergarten or first grade, I, had, I panicked. I was like, where's grandpa? He's always here. He, what happened? You know? And I'm looking around for him. I wait a few minutes. He's not there. I turn around. I decide, well, I guess I'm going to walk back to the school and call home and see what's going on. Now, in my little elementary school world, uh, what I thought was a few minutes had been over an hour, and my grandpa, in the meantime, had waited at the, that spot and wondered, where, where is Justin? Where is he? And he had about a heart attack as he walked my route back up to the school, couldn't find me, went to my teacher, said, hey, do you know where Justin is? Like, no, he left just like he does every day, and my grandpa walked around the school, couldn't find me, talked to the principal. He didn't happen to see me where I was in the corner of the playground with my friends, and so he was at home panicking, like, where is Justin? So the problem wasn't that I wanted to play on the playground with my friends. It's how I went about doing that. Right? I should have gone home and said, hey, should have gone to the, that corner and said, hey, Grandpa, can I, can I play with my friends on the playground? He'd probably be like, oh, sure, I'll, I'll just wait or I'll pull around there or I'll come back in 30 minutes or whatever. And so the problem isn't what they're doing, but why they're doing it. Now, the second misstep they take is a motivation that they have. And see, they even say, in this story, they say, hey, let's, let's build this so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered. They're motivated by pride. Let's make a name for ourselves and fear. We don't want to be scattered. Let's stay together. So let's build this great, impressive city that will hold all of us. And fear is just this powerful motivator. I mean, I'm sure you've probably, within the last week, seen at least one commercial that used fear to try to convince you to buy something. 
because look how terrible your life is going because you don't have these plastic containers that stack so easily in your cabinet. And oh my goodness, you don't want to be that mom who opens up your cabinet and all the plastic just pours out on top of you. You don't want that. And so whether it's fear from something as simple as that, or, you know, this is, this is how the news sells themselves. They use fear. We're getting close to another political cycle, and guess what? The candidates are going to use fear of the other person. Like, well, if you elect them in office, you know what they're going to do? They're, you know, they're going to do all these horrible things, and they're going to ruin our country, so you need to vote for me. They, they use fear constantly to motivate us to do something. And it's, maybe it's worked even just a little bit. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, how many times did you immediately see that and think to yourself, well, man, I need to buy that. Or you thought, well, maybe, maybe I should vote for that person because I don't want that to happen. Fear is a powerful, but it's a negative motivator. And fear and pride are driving the people in this story to act. Here's the third misstep they do, and it's with the tower that they're trying to build. You see, it's not just that they're building like a skyscraper. They are building a special kind of building in the ancient world called a ziggurat. And I brought a picture of what we think a ziggurat would have looked like. It kind of looks like a variation of, a, of the Mayan or the Aztec pyramids a little bit. But a ziggurat was essentially kind of like a stairway to heaven. And the people would build these structures, and they would put a couple rooms, usually one at the top, maybe one at the bottom, and they would furnish those rooms, and, and the priests would take food up there. Because their thinking was well, man, you know, if God decides to come down and visit us, surely he's going to get tired. Heavens, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of stairs on the stair machine. So, you know, God's going to need a Gatorade and, you know, granola bar or something just to, he might need a nap. And so it sounds really nice, but we learned a lot about what they had, what they thought about God from these buildings. They thought on some level, well, God's not going to come down unless we build a way for him to get here. And if we don't, you know, provide him with a bed and a place to rest and food, he's just going to get so tired, which I think it's really comical in the story. They're in the middle of building this, this bridge so God can come visit them. And in the middle of it, God just shows up on his own and like watches what they're doing. Like, huh, that's, that's cute. You guys are building a little staircase for me. That's nice. And it seems so thoughtful, but it's really their own way of controlling God of meeting God on their own terms. And it sort of makes us wonder, have they like learned nothing from these first few stories in the book of Genesis? Have they not learned anything about a God who's able to just show up on earth whenever he chooses, about a God who doesn't need anybody else, a God who's completely self-sufficient and all-powerful? But instead, they think, well, maybe if we build this building, maybe, maybe God will come to visit us. Maybe, you know, maybe if, if, unless we work really hard, God just, God just won't be able to come. And so they make these huge mistakes. And the consequence of, of that, of those different actions, is this sin that begins to result in everybody having a different language. And so what we find is the consequence of sin in Genesis chapter 11 is we have a communication problem. Now we can't really talk to each other very well. And we don't just miscommunicate when we speak different languages. We miscommunicate when we have different goals, when we have different motives or the wrong motives. And we miscommunicate when we try to control God and we try to control each other with our actions and our words. But let's be honest, even when we can all speak the same language, we still miscommunicate. 
don't we? I mean, how many times have you had to say, I, I know that's what I said, but that's not what I meant, right? Or you say a word and somebody hears it differently than what you intended. See, the answer isn't just, well, let's just, let's just all speak the same language, because even then that doesn't work. So we need a solution to that problem. And we begin to see God's grace in this story, even, even when he confuses their language. Because the irony is God confuses their language and then they actually obey him. Like then they scatter and they do what they're supposed to do. So God's grace is, even with the way that he disciplines those people all those years ago, it causes them to actually obey him and do what they're supposed to do in the first place. And so now they're scattered. And then, of course, we ultimately see God's grace when Jesus comes several thousand years after the Tower of Babel, and he dies on the cross and he raises from the grave. But you think, well, okay, so how does that, how does that fix what's going on? Because we still have lots of countries, all kinds of problems, all kinds of different goals, lots of different languages. We don't communicate very well. But what Jesus does is because of his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection, he creates a new family. He fulfills a promise that God will make here in just a few chapters that I'm going to make a people out of the whole world. I'm going to bless all the nations. And what we see God do is he, he doesn't uh, just give us all a language and make us all speak the same thing. He, instead, he puts us all together as one family, and he gives us a common goal and a common purpose through Jesus. And we even see this in the book of Revelation. When the apostle John sees a glimpse of heaven, he, can, he notices that there are people worshiping God from every tribe and tongue and nationality, speaking every kind of language. Well, how, how's John supposed to know that? My guess is because he's listening. And he hears people worshiping God with all these different languages, in all these different ways. And so this is a message that everybody needs to hear in every single language, that God has come to make us one united family. And in fact, there's a moment in the New Testament where we begin to see God start to change this problem. It happens in Acts chapter 2. A follower of Jesus named Luke is recording the history of the early church, and he writes in chapter 2, he says this, now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, that's the sound of the coming of the Holy Spirit, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means God is rolling back the Tower of Babel. And he does that by using the Holy Spirit so that Jesus' first followers who did not go to language school, they did not, you know, know multiple languages. They probably knew one. And he uses them to speak a message that everybody hears and everybody understands. So God doesn't fix our communication problem with a common language. 
but with a common message. And he uses us to communicate that message across different cultural boundaries and language barriers. And that's the message that Jesus Christ is now the Savior and the King of the world. And that's a message everybody needs to hear, no matter where they're from or what language they speak or how they think. Everybody needs to hear that message. So how can we be a part of God's solution? How can we be a part of that common message? Well, let's take each misstep that those people did in Babel and change it from a misstep into a next step towards Jesus. So let's start with that first one. The first misstep is they ignored God's commands, right? So that would be the obvious answer would be, oh, well, then we should obey God's commands, right? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, that seems pretty basic. Like, yeah, let's just do what God says. But you'll probably know like I do, it's kind of hard sometimes to obey God, isn't it? Little, little tricky. So somebody created this tool. Somebody created this tool, and this tool is called the five levels of obedience. And I'm just going to give them to you because I think it's kind of helpful in our discipleship. So level one is I'll do what I want. Just God doesn't matter. I'm going to do whatever I want. Level two is if God gives me what I want, then I'll give him what he wants. Right? So it's like, it's a little bit of a trade. All right, God, if you want me to do this, you better do this instead. Level three, I'll give God what he wants as long as he meets my needs. So you move from just what you want to recognizing, okay, God will take care of what I need. So if I obey God, he'll take care of my needs. Here's level four. I'll give God what he wants, believing in faith at some point, I'll get what I need and want. So the step here is, you recognize that it may not be immediate, it may take a while, but eventually, if I obey God, he'll help me out. But here's level five. I'll give God what he wants. You no longer expect or require him to necessarily do anything for you. So there's these five levels. So which level would you honestly put yourself at? And maybe it depends on the thing. Maybe on some things, if, if God asks, you're like, I'll absolutely do that, God. But maybe for other things, it's like, if you want me to do that, that's pretty tough, God. If you want me to do that, you're going to have to help me out. Like, I'm going to need to see some, some, some payment by tomorrow. So how could you grow in whatever level of obedience you're at to that next level? How could you trust God with obeying him and work towards that place of just being able to say, God, whatever you need, I'll do it. Or like that, that hymn says, wherever you lead, I'll go. How can you get there? So the second misstep that we find is their motivation. They had this motivation of pride and this motivation of fear. And so, of course, how can we change those motivations to have the right kinds of motivations? And Jesus, throughout his teachings, he gives us quite a few motivations to replace pride and fear with. You know, he talks a lot about love, and he talks about hope, and he talks about grace and truth. And I was just kind of, you know, researching this to see in the world of, like, psychology and motivational science and leadership, has anybody picked up on this? And I found a couple of really interesting articles. There is a, a journal article from the Journal of Emerging Leadership titled, Love as a replacement for fear in the workplace. 
and just talks about that, how to not motivate your employees with fear, but instead to use love. I found another article from the Wharton Business School that asked this question. They did this huge study trying to say, answer this question, does fear motivate workers or make things worse? I'm going to spoil the journal. Here, you don't have to go read the journal article. I'm going to spoil it for you. They discovered fear makes things worse. Probably not a big surprise. And, but what I found shocking is at the end of this article, their suggestion to employers and managers and CEOs, they said, based on our research, we have found that hope is a far better motivator than fear. And I just, I just kind of found that interesting because as I think about the words of the New Testament, I think about what Paul writes in Romans 8, for in this hope we were saved, not hope that is seen is no hope at all, who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul seemed to think, hey, hoping for what God is going to do in the future, what he's promised, that's a great motivator. With that kind of hope, we can wait patiently for what God's going to do next. And John wrote in his first letter, 1 John 4:18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. And so the Bible talks so much about different kinds of motivators for us as God's people. That we don't do things because we are afraid, and we don't do things to build a name for ourselves. We do things instead out of the love and the hope we have in Christ. And I wonder what it would look like in your life to enter into conversations or to make decisions instead of being based on pride or fear, but instead of, but instead making decisions out of love and out of hope. How might you talk differently to people if you're not afraid, but you love them? If you're not just trying to prove how great you are, but you're trying to lift them up? How would you act? How would you talk? And here's that last misstep, which they built a building to try to control God and meet him on their own terms. So how can we change that misstep from controlling God to listening to God? How can we do that? Henry Blackaby, in his book, Experiencing God, made this observation. I just really love what he has to say here. He wrote, you never find God asking persons to dream up what they want to do for him. We do not sit down and dream what we want to do for God and then call God in to help us accomplish it. The pattern in the scripture is that we submit ourselves to God and we wait until God shows us what he is about to do. Or we watch to see what God is doing around us and join him. See, I think a lot of us were tempted to come up with our own dreams and our own plans. And that's just kind of what happens in our culture. Right? I mean, even when we're little kids, I mean, I can remember little, little cute activities, like, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, you draw, like, I don't know, like I drew, like, an astronaut, president, NFL quarterback on the moon, you know, and you're like, oh, that's so cute, that's so great. And, of course, it's like, the NFL currently is not planning to expand to the moon, right? That's a very unrealistic dream. But sometimes we work really hard about, man, you've got to have a dream, you've got to have a plan, you've got to have your whole life all mapped out, and then, you know, some of you just graduated from high school, and maybe you feel a little freaked out because you don't have a plan. And everyone's you're supposed to have a plan. What are you going to do? And you're like, I don't know. And you're in college right now. And, or maybe you just graduated. And everyone, so what's next? What are you going to do when you graduate? And you're like, I don't know. 
I'm not even sure if my major is what I'm going to stick with, to be honest with you. I've already changed it 18 times, and I still don't know what I'm going to do. But we have this way of thinking, man, I've got to come up with it. I've got to figure it out. And then I've got to convince God to like be my agent and help me be successful. And God never puts that kind of pressure on anybody. Like he doesn't say, hey, Moses, all right, you're going to have to figure out how to rescue my people from Egypt. Good luck. And I was like, well, uh, okay. No, God says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you, he, he lays it out. For, I want you to talk to him. And he's like, well, what if he doesn't listen? Well, I'll, he'll get the message. Trust me. I've got 10 plagues ready. If he doesn't believe you, do this, do this. Do, he just gives him the whole plan. He, you know, think about Abraham. In just a couple weeks, we'll be talking about Abraham. He doesn't say to Abraham, all right, Abraham, good luck. I need you to go find a place out there and, and like make a giant family, even though you're way too old to have kids. He doesn't do that. He says, hey, Abraham, I will show you a place. Abraham's never been there. He can't get online. He can't like look up Google reviews of the restaurants. He can't look at pictures. He can't he has no idea what this place even looks like or where it is. God just shows him step by step how to get there and then how to fulfill the promise. In fact, it's really funny. In Scripture, people tend to get in trouble when they try to take God's plan and do it on their own. That's when they get in trouble. And I want you to know that part of the good news is that Jesus does not put that kind of pressure on you to come up with all the plans and all the solutions and all the answers. He already knows what he's doing. He's just asking you to listen and to follow. And if you just kind of follow where he's leading, you'll wind up exactly where you're supposed to be. Sometimes it'll even feel like it was on accident. But the pressure is not on you to come up with a plan to change the world and to save it. That's what Jesus will do. He's just asking us to be obedient and follow him and help him. He already knows exactly what to do. So it's not all on us. And one of, the, one of the practical ways I think that we can do this is if, you know, you kind of think about this, you know, a lot of us probably have like a devotional time or maybe you have a special place in your house that is where you, you can meet with God. And that place is just holy ground. And that's, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes we need that discipline of a special time, a scheduled place where we can go. But part of the reason we do that is so that we can hear God when he's trying to interrupt us everywhere else. Because the reality is with those places or those times is it's not that God's presence changes. It's not that God is more present at 6 a.m. or 3 p.m. or when you're here in this room or when you're off by yourself on a trail in the middle of a forest. It's that we've changed. It's that we've put ourselves in a position where we're paying attention or we're listening. And so continue to use those disciplines of having a place and a time and a schedule and a plan but let that get you used to what God sounds like so that he can interrupt you in the, in the middle of a busy day. That you've always got your ear open to what God might be doing. Because he might interrupt you and say, hey, I, I, know you're, I, know, I, I know you're trying to get dinner ready and you're trying to get everything at Kroger, but that person over there, I need you to go talk to them. And we, we use those disciplines to train our ear so that we can hear God when he interrupts you in the middle of whatever's going on and say, hey, hey listen to me. Here's what I'm doing. Pay attention. So allow God to interrupt you. And so here's the deal. We cannot get along because our fallen human nature 
focuses on all the right things, on all the wrong things. We get so distracted by what really doesn't matter. And so God, he doesn't fix our communication problem by giving us a common language. He gives us a common message. And that message that Jesus Christ is Lord unites all of us. This is what the entire book of Philippians is actually about. It's about that Jesus Christ has become the person that unites all of us around a common goal and a common person and a common motivation and a common direction. And Jesus, that same message that he is in charge of everything means he has saved the world. You know, I I know that it's exciting and it's motivating to say, hey, let's go change the world. And if we obey God and we follow him, yeah, he's going to let us help him do that. But the weight is not on our shoulders to fix the world. He, he knows what he's doing. He's already working on that. He just wants to let you get to be a part of it and celebrate in that as well. So let's change those missteps that we see in the Tower of Babel into next steps to trust God and see what he's doing in the world. Let's pray. Dear God, I'm so thankful that you don't give up on us. I know that, you know, even if we just read through the pages of Scripture, we find so many stories of of your people who just made horrible decisions and sinned against you and rejected you and ignored, even at times when you gave very, very clear commands and instructions. And Father, I know we do that too. Sometimes it's just so clear, and yet we struggle, we're tempted, and we go a different way. But God, I'm so thankful for your grace that always gives us another chance. And I'm thankful for the forgiveness that we have through your son, Jesus. And God, I'm so thankful that we don't have to come up with with every fix and every solution because you know what to do. You're at work already in the world. So God, through your Holy Spirit, will you just help us to continue to hear you and to see you? Give us the eyes to see what you're already doing. Give us the ears to hear how you're already working. Please make us interruptible to your will and your presence. And God, help us to continue to share that message into all of the world. That message that is turning people from all kinds of different nations and ethnicities, and languages, and backgrounds, and making us into one family through Jesus. I thank you for all of this that that you've already done, and that you're in the middle of doing, and that you will continue to do. And I say all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.